verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray this morning. And I want to mention uh, Zach Knob, Tabitha's little boy. I forgot to pray for him. He's been feeling sick the last few days. Let's uh, pray as well again. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we come before you today and we want to hear your word. We pray, Lord, that we would listen and that you would have uh, things for us as your word is, is living and active. And it is God-breathed and profitable for correction, for rebuke, uh, for training and teaching in righteousness. We pray that your spirit would come through the word of God, that we would uh, hear the gospel and delight ourselves in you. We do just pray, Lord, for, for Zach Knob, and as he's had this cold and uh, the mucus is increasing and, and Tabitha is concerned that he, he wouldn't get pneumonia as he had uh, last month, Lord, we just pray that you'd uh, watch over him and, and heal him and help him to uh, uh, be able to fight this cold. In your son's name, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Uh, amen. So I'm sure for many of us uh, this week, uh, for good or for bad, the the inauguration uh, was on our mind. Uh, It was kind of everywhere on the news. And of course, you heard a number of times uh, about the the appreciation for the quote-unquote peaceful transfer of power. Uh, Certainly, we we are grateful to live in a nation where where every four years we we are not leading a revolt and starting a new government. Uh, but that we peacefully elect our leaders and, and transfer the power peaceably. But of course, we live in a world where people are, are driven by power, and sort of the, the old saying, uh, kind of the, the tug-in-cheek way, is that you know, the, the people that, that are smart enough for politics are the ones who, who don't go in it, into politics. And of course, uh, people will critique politicians that they're just in it for, for the power, uh, for the prestige of it. Uh, other people engage in other things in their lives and they seek power maybe through money or through positions, in not just in government, but, but in the, the world of employment or to be a CEO of a company. We live in a world where people do think about power and pursue this and that because they think that is where real power is. Inside the church, we need to remember that the real power is with God. Whatever is going on in our world, whatever is going on in our nation, whatever people pursue as a means of obtaining power, true power is only found in God. And particularly when we think about how we do things as a church, We need to remember that the gospel is the power of God. When people talk about God being active in their life, when people talk about communicating with God and hearing from God and and having power from God, we need to remember, particularly in these days in our Christian world, in our Christian circles, that real power is found in the gospel. 
not only do we live in an age where people are, are obsessed with power, but we live in an age where the church is easily distracted by pursuing things that are outside of the Gospel and not, therefore, the power of God to work in us. So our main point this morning is do not be ashamed of the Gospel. Don't be ashamed of the Gospel. And the reason that Paul is not ashamed of the Gospel in this passage is because the Gospel is the power of God. How does God work? How do we experience His activity? How do we come to know Him? And how can we be assured that His power is at work in us? It is through the Gospel. And where there is no Gospel, there is no activity of the power of God at work. I need to be careful how I say that and qualify that. Of course, God is in control of all things. We, we see His power every day in the world just by sustaining creation. But what I mean is when people say to you they know God or they've experienced God or they've experienced the transforming power of God, if it isn't in and through the Gospel, God has not been at work. And don't be ashamed of that Gospel. Don't be ashamed to say that this is where God has determined to work. This message is how He saves people. Do not be ashamed of the Gospel. Our first point this morning is do not be ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God. That is the focus of this passage. The Gospel is the power of God. And you'll remember back in the beginning of chapter 1, Paul says that he is a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the Gospel. And in verse 3, this Gospel concerns the Son, Jesus, who descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be uh, the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness and His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is in this gospel message that God is saving people. So do not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. And so the gospel is the power of God. Look at the beginning of verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The reason Paul is not ashamed the reason he doesn't shrink back, the reason he is willing to talk about it, to preach it, to share it, is because God's power works in and through the Gospel. And so he says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not tucked away in a corner. I'm not shrinking back from this. And you will see in verses 14 and 15, he has said, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. Rome's a, a tough town. A tough crowd there. People from all over the empire. People from all kinds of different religions. Caesar is there. There is power in Rome. And Paul says, I'm not 
ashamed of the gospel. I'm under this obligation. God has called me to to take it to Rome, to take it into the world, to share it. Why? Because God is saving people through this message. Part of Paul not being ashamed does entail, as I've said, a willingness and a readiness to preach the gospel. And so in 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings for the gospel by the power of God. Here, Timothy is a young man. He's a pastor. He's a preacher. He's a teacher. He's an elder in a local church. And Paul says to him, don't be ashamed of the gospel, of the testimony of our Lord. God has put His Holy Spirit in you, and you do not have a spirit of fear, of timidity. Perhaps you remember what it was like to be a young uh, adult. Sometimes it can be intimidating to speak to people who are older, who are wiser, who have more life experience. It can be intimidating maybe as you went into your first job. People want to make sure they know that you're the low guy on the totem pole. Uh, When I had some friends who were truck drivers, I used to to talk to them, and they would always complain about the young guy who came fresh out of college and thought he knew everything. Some of these guys had been truckers for for 30 years. And they would would say that, oh, here's this young guy. He thinks he has all the answers, and he just doesn't know how the real world works. But when you do have something to say, when you do have the gospel, you can imagine how it would be intimidating for Timothy to lead a church as a young man. Maybe some of us have been in experiences where we've had to try to talk to someone about Jesus, to share the gospel with them, and it can be intimidating. It it can be easier to just kind of not say anything and then just say, well, you know, the issue really didn't come up like I would have wanted. To put ourselves out there and try to figure out how to start the conversation. What am I going to say? Sometimes you just have to dive right in, almost just with a boldness of, there there is no easy transition. You just have to say, hey, so that Jesus guy, have you ever heard of him? Or something along those lines. It can be fearful as sometimes we're waiting for the perfect moment to jump in. And, And as they say on the shoe commercial, Nikes, you know, just do it. Don't be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. One of the ways Paul shows he is not ashamed of the gospel is he has an unwillingness to change it or to compromise it, particularly when he knows people won't always like it. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then in verse 21, he says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, 
it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. The Gospel is is the active power of God. So that Paul says we we preach the Word of Christ crucified. the, The Word of the cross. And so for the Jew, this would be folly to say, Our Messiah, the one anointed by God, was actually cursed by being hung on the tree? That's stupid, they would say. The Greeks were looking for wisdom. They were were looking for uh, philosophy. Things that would, would convince them. Things that were wise by the standards of the age that, that appealed to the intelligence of, of the world around them. And so you come in and you say, here's this guy, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and is going to save the world. And then even going on and saying that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, when, when Paul said that in Acts chapter 17 at the Areopagus in Athens, they laughed at him. They mocked him. This is folly. This is foolish. This is dumb. Why would God, if He's so powerful, come down in the form of a man and die? That's not power. That's weakness, they would say. But what does God do when we stick to that message? He saves people. People come to believe, as Paul says, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God and the wisdom of God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. What we say people think is stupid, but God saves people and they come to believe in Him. And so part of not being ashamed for the Gospel is to say, I can't change the message. I can't water it down. I can't alter it and shift it slightly, even to to make it more palatable. It's it's not like a a recipe, you know, where you you know if it doesn't taste well, you just add a little bit of sugar. Remember remember the song, uh, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. You can't add sugar to the gospel. You can't water it down because even though people think it's dumb and foolish and bad medicine, the gospel is the power of God. If you had something that was extremely powerful, a car with a big engine that could win a race, And it could blow all the other competitors away. And you take that car to the racetrack. And everyone hates that car because it's going to win. It is powerful. Would you 
tone down the power in that engine so that people would like it more? Would, would, you, would you say, you know, well, well, we'll put a, a restrictor plate on that. We'll kind of, you know, tie one arm behind the back so, so that we can't win this race. No, that crown is powerful. We want that power to be displayed. The gospel is powerful. It is the power of God. And, and we want it displayed so that, that God would work through it. You may add sugar to medicine to make it go down better. But the last thing we would ever want to do is, is dilute medicine so that it's less powerful in someone's body. We cannot be ashamed of the gospel. Jesus says in Luke 9.26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The temptation that each one of us faces on a regular basis, we have all been there, to hold back, to say less about Jesus, to, to not share the, the full counsel of God's Word, to kind of push aside the things like, like hell that might offend people. But that is what we need to be saved from our sins and the condemnation that it deserves in the Gospel. In the Gospel alone, God brings salvation to all who believe. Verse 16 again, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for what? What results from God's power work through the Gospel? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greeks. How do people get saved? It's in the gospel. They hear who Jesus is. They hear that they are a sinner, but they hear the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven. Because Christ paid for them. He died in our place. He bore the wrath that we deserved. If we receive His forgiveness, we go to heaven. We enjoy peace with God. Again, 1 Corinthians, For the word of the cross is foolish folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. John, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says, Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ, so that everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Again from Romans 10, verses 11, 12, and 13. For the Scriptures say, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who come to Him. For everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul's going to Rome where his hope is to go to Rome. And in the church at Rome, there were people who were Jewish in their background, who grew up knowing the scriptures, going to synagogue, hearing the word of God read. There were also Greeks who had become Christians. Pagans. People that had gone into temples in their life and worshipped idols, false gods. And you can imagine when some of these individuals got saved and started coming to church, you can imagine a little bit how, how people were at loggerheads. I, uh, I watched... I'm, I have a weakness for Westerns. Some of the old Westerns. I, I love the Magnificent Seven. And I watched uh, over the weekend while my wife was away, I watched uh, the new version of the Magnificent Seven. And, and I won't go into all the details, but, but two of the characters. One was from Mexico, and one was, was uh, a southern gentleman from Louisiana. And the Louisiana guy goes, my great-granddaddy fought at the Alamo and died. And the Mexican goes, my great-granddaddy fought at the Alamo too. Maybe my granddaddy killed your granddaddy. And these guys are supposed to be on the same team now in the Magnificent Seven. You can imagine, though, the illustration is to say, you can imagine Greeks and Gentiles, or Jews and Gentiles getting together, and there had been fighting between Jews and Gentiles. Rome had, had run through and, and uh, profaned the temple at one point. Uh, during the period of the Maccabees, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jewish people were put to death and killed by Greeks. You can imagine this tension. My great-granddaddy profaned your temple. My great-granddaddy died in the temple for the Lord. And now they're both in the church, worshiping the living and true God through Jesus Christ. And yet, what does Scripture say? God shows no partiality that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. First, meaning not that they're more special, but just where did Jesus die? Right outside of Jerusalem. Who were the first people that started hearing the gospel? People that lived in that area. Jewish people. Who were the ones that had the Old Testament that these things were given in prophecy so that the whole world might know? It was Jews. But it was so that the gospel could go to the nations. We need to remember that when we think about sharing the gospel. We need to remember that when we think about who can, can come to church and join the church. That the gospel is the power of God that saves everyone who believes. And that if a person is a believer in Christ, no matter what their background, no matter where they came from, no matter what kind of life they lived before they were a believer, in the body of Christ. Because Christ saved each one of us the same way. God's power is at work in the Gospel. It's, it's the same power that, that God used when He raised Jesus Christ from the dead is now at work in our life through the Gospel. That is real power. So in 2 Corinthians 13, 4, we read, For He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. 
Ephesians chapter 1, Paul is praying that we might know in verse 19, quote, the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe. Then he says in verse 20 that He, God, worked in Christ when He raised Jesus from the dead and seated Him at the right hand of the heavenly places. Paul says in his prayers, I want you to know the power of God. That immeasurable power. And and He's worked it in us and towards us who believe. He's saving us. And that power, that power raised Christ from the dead. And I want you to know that that is at work in you through the Gospel. Because the Gospel, when it is preached and proclaimed and the person believes, the sinner moves from being dead in their sins to being alive in Christ. Just as Jesus moved from real, true, physical death under its power into resurrection life that death is never able to defeat him again. And God raised him from the dead. So God takes you and I. And we are described in Ephesians chapter 2 as what? Dead in our trespasses. We are under the power of sin. We are absolutely dead. We follow the ruler and the God of this age. He is our master. We are enslaved to Him and our sin. And when we preach the Gospel, the sinner hears that Jesus Christ died to save us. And the Holy Spirit, the power of God, works in that person's life. The power of God that moves Jesus from life to death moves you and I from spiritual death to spiritual life. I said moves Jesus from life to death. Moves Jesus from death to life. Moves us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Where does God do that? What message does God bring so that that can happen. It is only the Gospel. What are some ways in our day and age that we can be ashamed of the Gospel? We are functionally ashamed of the Gospel when we do not live and act like it is the power of God. We might not say we're ashamed of the Gospel, but but oftentimes we can live that way when we don't act like it's the power of God. So, when we are afraid to speak it or share it with others, when we worry what people will think and say, we've we've all been there. At the core of that, we are ashamed of the Gospel when we act when we feel we need to add to the Gospel, when we know that people won't like it, or, or so we feel we should water it down or, or soften it. We're ashamed of the Gospel when the Gospel isn't enough for us. When we're discontent, looking for other things outside of Jesus. There's a whole phenomenon in the Christian world today about ways we can hear God speaking to us, ways that we can 
connect better with God. There's whole books written that, that proclaim to be that this is God speaking to us. This is Jesus calling us. And if it's not in the Gospel, it's not the power of God. It's not real. God works in and through the Gospel. We can be ashamed of the Gospel when it's not enough for the ministry and the growth of our church. Few can say with an honest face that the same principles that will grow a business will grow a church. You are betraying the true nature of the gospel. The power of God is at work. Does the power of God work in and through businesses? I mean, God is sovereign over all things. So yeah, on the one hand, God, God is at work everywhere. But, but when the salesman comes to your door, you know, is, he, is he giving you or offering you the power of God? Um, if he is and it comes in a little can or something, don't buy it. It's a sham. But the church, is we, we proclaim Jesus, the gospel, the power of God. We're functionally ashamed of the gospel when we think there are all kinds of other things that will bring people to church or get them interested in God. When we become about entertainment, we're even using the language of self-help. You know, God, God will, will make you better. God will help you conquer uh, giants in your, in your life or, or what's holding you back kind of language. Sin is holding you back. And you need the gospel so that sin would be put to death and you might come to life. We need to be careful about messages and, and ways of doing church and preaching that, that just sort of tickle the ears, that, that tell people what they want to hear, that, that are sort of the same language and almost the same content that you could find in the self-help section of the bookstore, the, the psychology of it. You know, be a better person. Think better thoughts about yourself. We're not really that bad. Well, the gospel says we really are sinners, but Jesus Christ really is a great and wonderful Savior. And when we start sharing that and teaching that, we are, are ministering the gospel, which is the power of God. God's righteousness is at work in the gospel. And this is our, our second point this morning. Do not be ashamed of the gospel because it reveals God's righteousness. For in it, in the gospel that saves everyone who believes, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. The righteousness of God revealed. What is this? This language, I think, goes back to the Old Testament. God's righteousness is often described in Scripture as His, his saving activity, where, where the sinner can just cry out to God and say, Oh God, in Your righteousness, in Your goodness, in Your salvation, save me. Psalm 51.14, David prays, Deliver me from blood guilt, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of Your righteousness. By awesome deeds, Psalm 65, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. Psalm 71, 2, in your righteousness deliver me. 
Psalm 98, 1 and 2, O sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of nations. How does God reveal His righteousness in the sight of nations? Make known His salvation. It is in the Gospel that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners and anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That's where God brings salvation. That's where God demonstrates His righteousness so that He is righteous in judging sin but also righteous and good in His character in doing what He promised to do and that is saving people who believe in Him, who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one who judges sin, but also the one who justifies the sinner, declares the sinner righteous, and they believe in Him. And so this righteousness is revealed through faith, or it says from faith to faith, or we might say something like from faith through and through or entirely by faith. It, it means the whole thing. The way the believer experiences salvation and receives the righteousness from God is through faith and only through faith. Jesus dies on the cross and accomplishes it. How do I come to participate in it? Do I earn my way to God? Can I do enough good things that will make Him love me? If I basically act like a good person, will that do it? No. It is only through faith and entirely by faith. Just like in the Psalms where, where David cries out, Deliver me from blood guilt, O God of my salvation. I need Your righteousness, Your salvation, because I am a sinner and all that I can do is throw myself on You in faith. And ask for it. And trust that you do these things. Don't be ashamed of the Gospel. Because God's own righteousness is revealed in and through it. Salvation is by grace alone. Right? We only, we only get it as a gift. It comes to us. We experience it. We receive it through faith alone, the only thing that we can do. We have, we have nothing to offer God. We can't bargain with Him and say, if I do this for you, God, will you just do this for me? It comes through faith alone. I'm a sinner. And all I can do, God, is believe that Jesus is a Savior and ask for this salvation. It comes through faith alone in Christ only trust God and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ to receive salvation. Faith involves understanding what Jesus did on the cross, that He died for sins. It involves a, an assent to it that, that yes, this really is where salvation is found. You know, yes, I believe the Word of God is true, but, but in the end of the day, faith is an, an act of trust. An act of saying, I have nothing and, and all I can do is rely on this one who died on the cross and receive what he offers to me. 
so I see what Scripture says. I know that it means firming that Jesus Christ dies in your place. But I look to him in an act of belief, of trust, of a self-abandonment. This is why, too, you know, self-help and the gospel cannot work together. You can't save yourself at the same time you're trusting someone else to save you. You can't fix up your own life and rely on yourself and and, and just uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, and be a better person. At the same time, you're saying, I'm a sinner, and all I have is nothing, and everything I need is what Christ has. Don't be ashamed of this gospel, because in it, we're declared righteous. Notice how our verse ends. The righteous shall live by faith. It's a quote from Habakkuk. It's a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. So what happens when I put faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Romans 10, 9 and 10, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart what one believes and is justified, and it is with your mouth that one confesses and is saved. The righteous shall live by faith. What happens at salvation? One of the great acts that God does at salvation is called justification. It means to declare someone righteous. When we are saved, we are declared righteous in Christ. How does, how does this work? Think of, think of the imagery of, of a law court, right? Now, some of us have probably more experiences with courts than others, but think of an ancient law court. And, and you stand before a judge, and, and in ancient law courts, there's not juries that you're appealing to. You're, you're going before the judge. And there are two verdicts that the judge can give you, guilty or not guilty. But, but not just not guilty, but, but righteous in the sense of you have now a positive standing before the judge. You know, we say in our, our American legal system, you know, just because someone is not guilty doesn't mean they didn't do it. It just means you couldn't prove it. There's not enough evidence. And, and so it's sort of a, a um, I'm not, I don't know all the legal terms, but it's not a positive statement. It's sort of just kind of neutral, not, not guilty. You know, sometimes my kids are not guilty in the sense that I couldn't catch them doing what I know they did. But, but, but in the ancient world, it, it, was, it was guilty, wicked, condemned is one verdict, and, and righteous on the other. You have a good standing now before the judge. You are, you are fine before the court. You are vindicated and in the right. And so, we stand before God and we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and God declares the sinner vindicated. He declares them righteous before this throne of judgment. And yet the sinner is a sinner. The sinner is wicked. The sinner is, pardon the phrase, guilty as sin. And the judge says, righteous. How is this not a travesty of justice? 
I mean, think of all the, just even the last year or two, all the times where we're in our world, um, somebody was found not guilty, and by popular opinion, everyone assumed he did it. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but just think of how when, when people perceived an injustice, think of how they reacted, think of how they protested, think of how they rioted. Is it not an injustice that God would look at a sinner who's wicked and say, righteous? God finds it in the Old Testament an abomination when human judges look at a wicked person and say they're righteous. Or look at a righteous person and says they're guilty. God warns in Exodus that judges should not take bribes and and show partiality so, so that a rich person who is super guilty can't come in and slip a few shekels under the table or whatever kind of money they had with them and say to the judge, hey, you know, how you doing? I'm a pretty good guy, right? And the judge goes, hey, he looks innocent to me. Or here's that, that poor person that, that really is innocent. You think of uh, the man uh, Naboth and his vineyard, uh, and, and he had two um, people that testified how he had uh, cursed God. And they put him to death so that, so that um, Ahab, the wicked king, could take Naboth's vineyard. Here's the rich, powerful person who has done all these sins. Here is the innocent Naboth. And there is this perversion of justice when Naboth is judge and Ahab gets the victory of the vineyard. So how is it fair? How is it right? How is it not a violation of God's own character who says in Exodus 34 that he will, quote, by no means clear the guilty? that he clears you and I. Guys, brothers and sisters, this is gospel. That God is the righteous one who judges sin in the Lord Jesus Christ, maintaining that righteousness by pouring out his wrath for sin, and at the same time is the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Flip over to Romans chapter 3 in your Bibles or flip your Bible app over. Scroll down, whatever it might be. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified, meaning declared righteous, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the one who pays for our sins, redeems us. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation for His blood. That, that's a way of saying God puts Jesus out there and pours His wrath onto the Son so that the wrath that God has for sin is completely exhausted because it has been paid for. That's what propitiation means. All of these words are very important. Verse 25 again. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. God's 
righteous character. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He is a just God. And he judges sin. And he judges it in the Lord Jesus Christ who takes our place. And at the same time, the justifier of the one who has faith in him. Meaning, he is just in punishing sin. He maintains his righteousness and holiness. And at the same time, when a sinner believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that sinner can be saved. And when God saves someone, He says to them, You I declare to be righteous. He makes a a verdict, a declaration. We still go on in sin in this life. We still in this life never live out a perfect righteousness in our behavior. But from the moment you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that verdict, a declaration, you are declared righteous. That verdict is on you from the moment you first believe until all eternity. You are not just saved from your sins. You are saved to heaven you talk to someone who comes out of a Roman Catholic background, they never know or have assurance in this life if they have righteousness to stand before God. They believe that righteousness is always something that God is is forming in us. And we believe there's an aspect where God forms and shapes our character. But God does that because he has also assured you of your salvation and declared you to be righteous. You already have the verdict from the judge. I, I don't want to be crass about this, but I'm going to try to make a joke. You know how people say, you know, when you get to heaven and you die and you see St. Peter uh, at the gate and he says to you, why should I let you into heaven? First off, there's nothing biblical about that. There there is no St. Peter at the gate that we know of in Scripture. If you're asked before you should come, you know, the the answer is, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ died for my sins, right? If you say, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? It's the same answer. But if I can make a joke about it, when you're saved, you have a VIP pass into heaven. You don't have to wait at the gate to be asked the question. You get ushered in through the VIP entrance because you have already been declared righteous. You go into heaven when you die. You enjoy peace with God now because God has declared you in and through the gospel as you believe in Jesus Christ. God has declared you righteous. Isaiah 45 says this, but I myself, but By myself I have sworn. My mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me 
every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So this is part of God's righteousness. This word goes out. But then it says, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, the believer, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be uh, to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. And in the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. People will come before God on the last day and be ashamed because they mocked God. You and I can stand now and not be ashamed because the gospel is the power of God to save us. And in the gospel, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are completely and absolutely saved. You are declared righteous already. And and you won't get more of a verdict. You won't get more things added to that. The judge has already ruled in your favor. Case closed. That's it. I used to be concerned about how we live and concerned with doing good works and bearing fruit of our salvation. And the Lord will examine those things in the last day. But in terms of salvation, the judge has ruled. Let me say two things then this morning. Number one, take courage, brothers and sisters. I am always declared righteous, even though in this life I don't always live righteously. It's normal for the Christian to battle indwelling sin. It's normal to struggle against these things. It's normal to... To feel ashamed when you did some sort of sin. But that doesn't make you less of a Christian. God does not revoke his verdict on the true believer. Be righteous. Take courage in that. Even as you go back before God and you say, Forgive me again of my sins. Know that you are his child. You're in the family. I am always and have always been from the moment I believe counted and considered righteous to have the verdict hanging over me that declares my vindication. Second, this morning, trust God to act in the gospel. God's righteousness, his, his saving character, His grace, His tender mercy to sinners is revealed in the gospel. That God does what he says he would do, that a sinner who trusts in him will receive that verdict. Not because the sinner is good, but because God is good. And God is righteous. And having determined to save a people unto himself, God's righteousness means he will stick to doing what he says. Righteousness is revealed in the gospel as sinners get saved. Let us not take away from this, detract from it, water it down, or think that there are things that we can do as a church that, that will be more powerful or more appealing to others, that will make people more excited, that will draw in a bigger crowd. I hope one day you practice faith power. 
because the gospel is the power of God. When you go up to somebody, I know we've all been there. It can be hard to figure out what to say about Jesus. How to start that conversation. Sometimes when it's a loved one, and they know your sins, and they know what you've done, and it's a close friend, it can be even harder. After sermons, I go home and think, I could have said that better. gracious God and Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we come before you today and we ask that you would work in our hearts, work in our lives, minister to us through this gospel. Lord, that we would see afresh, not only in our church, but Lord, in our country, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. There are so many people and places out there where we proclaim the gospel and we say that we believe it, but oh Lord, our behavior betrays that we believe it's the power of God. We act in such a way as if it's not. Oh, Lord, we repent of these things. Forgive us that we have detracted from you and your righteousness and your power that you long to work in our midst. Oh, God, send the Holy Spirit. We pray these things not in showmanship, Jesus.